Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast. Thanks for all your support of the ministry. I hope you're benefiting from the approach this ministry takes, where we really dive into the text verse by verse to try and help you understand what the text meant in its original context. And of course, that's where we have to start as Catholics. The teaching of the church is that if you want to understand the Bible, you need to under uh, you need to start with the literal sense before you move on to any other senses of Scripture. If you're being benefited from this ministry, please tell other people about it. As a small ministry, there's no marketing department. If we want the ministry to grow and do more things, the best way to do it is to tell other people about it. And if you are interested in financially supporting the ministry and getting access to bonus episodes, the link for that is in the episode description. So we're looking today at a part of the Bible that is read a lot at Mass. This particular section, you'll hear it various times throughout the liturgical cycle, and particularly a lot in year C. So we're looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. Jesus began to speak in the synagogue. This text is being fulfilled today even as you listen. And he won the approval of all, And they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, surely. But he replied, No doubt you will quote me the saying, Physician, heal yourself. And tell me, We have heard all that happened in Capernaum. Do the same here in your own countryside. And he went on, I tell you solemnly, No prophet is ever accepted in his own country. There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, in Elijah's day, when heaven remained shut for three years and six months, and a great famine raged throughout the land. But Elijah was not sent to any one of these. He was sent to a widow at Zarephath, a Sidonian town. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of these was cured, except the Syrian Naaman. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They sprang to their feet and hustled him out of the town, and they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff. But he slipped through the crowd and walked away. So a really interesting passage to look at today, and it sort of starts from a bit of a strange place. It starts halfway through the scene, so we need to set the context. Jesus has just arrived in his hometown Nazareth, towards the beginning of his ministry. So it's right at the beginning of uh, his ministry, as presented by Luke. He's in Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue. So he's the person that's appointed on that Sabbath to read from the scriptures and preach. Now, he's in the synagogue. He's just been standing up, and he's quoted from the book of Isaiah, that famous passage in Isaiah, where it says, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me.'" to preach the good news, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. So he's just quoted that quote from the book of Isaiah. And you can hear that if you want to hear that on the podcast on Monday of week 22 in ordinary time. So Jesus has just sat down after he's finished uh, reading from the scriptures. And now he's going to teach. He's going to give the sermon, the homily, basically. And all the people in the synagogue in his old hometown, they're watching to see what he's going to say about this particular passage. Verse 21, he began to say to them, and the text here kind of indicates that we have an abbreviated version of his sermon. We don't get to hear Jesus' entire sermon. I wish we did, but we don't. All we get to hear him say here is this, this text is being fulfilled today, even as you listen. 
That's the abbreviated version we get of Jesus' sermon. So Jesus claims to be the Messiah here. Notice he says, even as you listen. So Jesus is doing these things at this very moment. Particularly, he's bringing good news to the poor. And you could also say he's bringing sight to the blind by him even being there and talking to them. Verse 22. He won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. So initially, the response of the crowd is very positive. They're amazed and they're astonished by him. And they have his approval, but very quickly that turns around. It seems that it's within a couple of minutes or perhaps a couple of hours. Things turn around pretty quickly. And this is what they say. They said, this is Joseph's son, surely. So the people of Nazareth, who are a very tight-knit community, they know that Jesus is Joseph's son. That's what they know him as. They've seen him grow up and be a carpenter, and they find it hard to believe that he's now a preacher anointed by God. That just doesn't make sense to them because there's such a radical division in their mind between common working man and religious teacher. And they think surely he can't be a teacher, certainly not the Messiah who's going to inaugurate Israel's national liberation. Mark's version of this story, Mark chapter 6, unpacks the crowd's response a bit more and their incredulity here. So Mark's version gives us more information about the crowd, but Luke's version here gives us the most information about what Jesus says on this occasion. Verse 23, he replied, No doubt you will quote me the saying, Physician, heal yourself. So apparently this was a common proverb at the time, Physician, heal yourself, which basically means something like this, If you are so good, prove it to us. That's what the phrase meant at that time. And Jesus here predicts that they're going to quote him that saying, Um, Now, interestingly, only Luke the physician quotes this proverb. None of the other gospel authors include Jesus saying this, probably because Luke himself is a physician, so he thinks it's worthwhile, including this saying Jesus has about physicians. What does Jesus mean here when he predicts that they're going to say, physician, heal yourself? He's predicting that that's the attitude the people of Nazareth will have. He thinks they're going to have an attitude of, we demand proof, and he turns out to be spot on. He goes on, you will tell me, we have heard all that happened in Capernaum, do the same here in your own countryside. So by now Jesus had moved to Capernaum and he'd done lots of miracles there as part of his ministry. Now Luke hasn't told us any of those by this point, but he will later in his gospel. Now Jesus is here in Nazareth, which is about a day's journey away, and they want to see similar miracles. Basically, they want proof in order to believe this carpenter's son, which they know so well. Verse 24, they're still in the synagogue. Jesus says, I tell you solemnly. Now, when Jesus says that, different translations have it as amen, amen, or verily, verily. So that means Jesus is about to say something significant. And often it's a some sort of universal theological statement that applies to all times. No prophet is ever accepted in his own country. So Jesus here is telling us a general pattern, and he's talking particularly about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets were often rejected by the people of the town that they grew up in, so they have to go and minister somewhere else. And the reason they're often rejected is because everyone knows who they are, and the town doesn't believe that this person is capable of being God's messenger. Not that they don't believe in God, but that they just don't think that this person that they, they know so well from their town could be a messenger. So notice by Jesus saying this, 
he's basically claiming to be a prophet. He's implying that he's a prophet and that he's being rejected by his own hometown, which is true. So Jesus now goes on to give two examples from Old Testament history. And this has been explained, you know, what's Jesus' reason for doing this? It's explained different ways by different scholars. Some people have said that he's uh, giving a discussion about the Jubilee year because he just quoted from Isaiah and it mentions Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, and he's about to explain how it's being extended to Gentiles. That's one option. I think it's more likely that he's continuing what he just said, which is no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. He's now going to give two examples where the prophet wasn't accepted in their own country. So there's, he's going to talk about two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which were Jewish prophets, but they had to work in Gentile areas because basically they were rejected by the Jews in their own area. So Jesus, by citing two examples here, he's calling on two witnesses to support the point he's making. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that the expectation was if you want to make a point, you've got to have two witnesses to back you up. Um, And that's listed in Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. So that's what Jesus is doing. His two witnesses are going to be Elijah and Elisha. Verse 25, Jesus says, There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, in Elijah's day. So notice that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day. But the key thing Jesus is about to say is that Elijah didn't go to any of the Israelite widows because they wouldn't have accepted him. When heaven remained shut up for three years and six months and a great famine raged throughout the land. So Jesus here is setting the context of the Elijah story. And this is in 1 Kings 17 verse 8 to 16. Now, interestingly, when Jesus says here, he's talking about the time of Elijah, when heaven remained shut up for three years and six months. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, we don't actually learn that it's three years and six months. We don't get the time period. But Jesus knows what the time period is. So this provides strong evidence that the Jews did place a lot of weight on traditions outside of Scripture. And Jesus believed that as well. So often you might hear some Christians say that, Jews would have only believed the things that were clearly in the Old Testament, but this isn't. The time period of Elijah's drought is not in the Old Testament, but apparently all the Jews knew what it was, so they must have believed in unwritten traditions. Now, why does Jesus here feel the need to set this context of Elijah's story, of talking about three years and six months? Many scholars would say it's significant for the Jews because it's half of seven years. So it's like half of completion because for the Jews, seven means completion. And it appears, if we add up the dates, that Jesus' own ministry was three years and six months long, which is interesting, the same length as Elijah's ministry, in a sense, anyway, in in Elijah's part, this part of Elijah's ministry. So maybe by Jesus bringing up the time length of this part of Elijah's ministry. He's foreshadowing his own ministry. That's a possibility. Verse 26, Elijah was not sent to any of these. He was sent to a widow at Zarephath, a Sidonian town. So Elijah went to a Gentile town. You can read this in 1 Kings 17, where he was accepted by the Gentiles. And in this case, God allowed the Gentile woman to survive the famine through the work of the Jewish prophet Elijah. Verse 27, he gives a second example. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel. 
Some people pronounce this Elisha, just to make it a little bit clearer, to compare it to Elijah, but I'm just going to call it Elisha, just for argument's sake. So, once again, with Elijah, God's prophet is rejected by the Israelites, and Elisha goes to the Gentiles instead. Jesus says none of these were cured except the Syrian, Naaman, and this is referred to in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. You might remember the story of Naaman the Syrian where he's told to bathe seven times and then he's cured of leprosy. So in both examples here, the Israelites were experiencing a drought, but God didn't help them. He healed Gentiles instead. The Jewish prophets healed Gentiles. So here Luke is highlighting this story because, and as he often does in Luke's gospel, He wants his readers to know that the kingdom is open to Gentiles, not just to Jews. So these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, were not accepted in their hometown, but they were accepted by the Gentiles, just as Jesus is. So Jesus is basically, he's going to mirror a lot of the same works as Elijah and Elisha. So by Jesus telling the story of Elijah and Elisha, where they're both rejected by the Jews, at a period in their ministry, but accepted by the Gentiles. He's, in a sense, holding up a mirror to his own hometown. And he's getting them to think about, you know, again, he's implying that he's a prophet, Jesus himself, and he's getting his town to think about, are you going to treat me the same way? And the townsfolk don't like it. They don't like the way he's told the story. They get quite angry about it. Verse 28, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. What are they angry about exactly? Well, it's not clear. There's two different possibilities about what his his town is angry about. So one option would be something like this. How dare the carpenter's son accuse us of rejecting a prophet of God? As in Jesus himself. That would be one option. The second option would be they're thinking something like this. How dare the carpenter's son say that God would include the Gentiles? So the Jews at this time, although they did believe the Old Testament prophecies that one day the Gentiles would be part of the final kingdom, on the whole, by this point in history, they'd come to not like the Gentiles because they associated Gentiles with Romans, the Roman soldiers. So they weren't too fond of a prophet who comes along and says, oh yeah, the Gentiles are going to accept me, the Jews won't. And so that whole Gentile-Jew tension, and they're thinking about the Gentiles' role in salvation, might have made the townsfolk quite angry. So for whatever reason, his speech about Elijah and Elisha being accepted by the Gentiles, and also his implication that Jesus himself is a prophet makes them very angry. Verse 29, they hustled him out of the town. So you can imagine them physically grabbing Jesus, dragging him out of the small town of Nazareth. And they took him up to the brow of the hill the city was built on. So Nazareth, it appears, was built on some sort of hill. And they intend to throw him down the cliff. This is Jesus' own townsfolk. They're trying to kill him. This is pretty full on. Why are they trying to kill him? Well, one theory is they might be trying to enact the penalty for a false prophet. Um, In Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, it says, If you perceive a false prophet is in your midst, you should kill them. So maybe they think Jesus is a false prophet, or maybe they've just had enough of him. This is foreshadowing the other plots on Jesus' life that will occur later in his life. So Luke has put this in here really early. So we already get a picture of Jesus as a suffering person 
who uh, people want to kill. But verse 30, he slipped through the crowd, or some translations have it as passing through the midst of them. What does that mean? Does that mean that he sort of just ran away, or is it some sort of miraculous escape? It's not clear. It's not clear how he disappeared from the crowd here. Probably some sort of miracle involved, where they didn't notice him leave. But we don't know exactly. And then he went away. So he escaped the death threat, and he never returns to Nazareth. He never goes back to his hometown. Some people from Nazareth come and visit him, so his, his mother comes and visits him, but he apparently never goes back to Nazareth himself. So it's an incredibly rich text, what we've seen today, and scholars have written a lot about uh, this particular passage because of why Jesus quotes it and what it meant in its original context. There's a whole lot of Luke's themes that come together in this one place, That's and Luke is really setting up his gospel here by highlighting the kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be, what his mission is going to be. There's no catechism references that map onto what we've heard today, verses 21 to 30, but there's a whole lot that are referenced in relation to the actual Isaiah passage, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The catechism spends a lot of time talking about that passage from Isaiah. So if you want to hear that, the best place to hear that on the podcast would be Monday of week 22 in ordinary time. That's when we really take apart the Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes. Thanks for your support of the ministry. I hope you've learned something new and we'll continue in the coming days. Thank you.